Psalm 129, verse 1. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, The blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Uh, holiday season is, uh, is almost upon us. Uh, so I thought I'd recommend some reading that you might like to do uh, over the holidays, or might not like to do, or you might like to borrow the book and then leave it on your uh, uh, side table for a while. But um, uh, a few things uh, that are worth reading. Holiness by J.C. Ryle. If you've never read uh, Holiness by J.C. Ryle, it's, it's epic. Uh, it is, uh, it's fantastic. Best book ever written. Uh, a Praying Life by Paul Miller. Uh, Rachel reviewed this a few months ago, I think, or probably longer than that uh, ago. Uh, a great book on prayer, a very practical uh, book on prayer. He's uh, been involved uh, with the Navigators Ministry, I think, uh, for a while. Uh, wouldn't be a book recommendation without Carson, How Long, O Lord, if you're thinking about um, suffering in the world, and uh, that kind of ties in a bit with the sermon this morning. Carson, Carson's book, How Long, O Lord, is very helpful. Uh, and has helped a great many people. And uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. It's not about uh, depression per se, uh, although I think it has things to say about that, but uh, it's about unhappy Christians uh, and why unhappy Christians are a poor recommendation for the gospel. Uh, And so he seeks to address that uh, under the banner of what he calls spiritual depression. So... uh, Holidays are on for uh, some people. Uh, If you're looking for something to do, pick up some some great books. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, come to your word now and we seek your wisdom to understand it. Lord, we seek your wisdom not only to understand your word, but through your word to understand the world and ourselves uh, and our relationship with you. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to understand uh, those things uh, and understand the the good news about Jesus uh, and who he is and how he has saved us. So, Father, we pray all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you watch uh, the news on an evening, the chances are that every once in a while you'll hear someone say something like this. Uh, a man walks out of, out of court or, or, or out of the, uh, the Royal Commission into child abuse. Uh, he's been abused as a child and he says something like, I hope that man rots in hell. I hope he rots in hell for what he's done to me. Uh, a woman who was raped uh, comes out of the trial uh, and says, he stole my life. I hope they take away his life as well. I hope they lock him up and they throw away the key and he never sees the light of day again. What do we make uh, of those kinds of statements? Some people might say, well, they have a right to be angry. Don't they? 
been through, they've been through hell. Others might say, well, it seems vindictive. Shouldn't we be compassionate? Shouldn't we be forgiving? What do we do when people say things like that, when they make comments like that? And what do we do when we find comments like that in the Bible? You see, the second half of this psalm is expressing those same kinds of sentiments. The second half of Psalm 129 is a psalm where people call out for judgment. Uh, Verse 5, May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. What do we do with that sentiment? How do we understand that in the light of God's determination to forgive those who repent and who turn to Jesus? It's not as easy, I don't think, as saying that the Old Testament was about judgment and the New Testament is about forgiveness, because the Old Testament was about forgiveness as well. There are rich expressions of forgiveness woven all throughout the Old Testament. God's always forgiving people. And the New Testament is about judgment. The New Testament ratchets up both ideas, the idea of forgiveness and judgment. No one in the Bible speaks more about hell than Jesus does. And the judgment that Jesus speaks about is not just a temporary judgment, the kind of judgment we see in the Old Testament, but an eternal judgment. So how do we deal with this psalm which calls out for judgment And then how does this this psalm help us to understand the judgment of God more broadly? And how does this psalm help us to understand our response to an evil world? Well, the first thing we have to acknowledge, I think, together with this psalm, is the real experience of evil. The people cry out in verse 1, They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. But they have not gained the victory over me. These people had been violently oppressed. They'd been violently impressed for their entire lives, from their youth. That expression, from their youth, might even point to the kind of the broader history of Israel. That is, as a nation as well, they had been oppressed as a people at various times and in various ways. But despite this opposition, despite this oppression, they haven't been totally destroyed by it. They haven't gained the victory over me. The writer says, and yet even still, they haven't been completely annihilated. Even still, it's been utterly horrendous. What's it been like? Verse 3, plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. What's it like? It's like somebody driving a plow across your back. Like all the Psalms of Ascents, this Psalm probably has an eye here to the period when the people of God were in captivity in Babylon. Uh, That period was a period of great oppression and great evil. So during the siege of Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar attacked uh, Jerusalem, King Zedekiah was captured, his sons were slaughtered before his very eyes, and then his eyes were gouged out. Or you might remember too the kinds of things that happened while Daniel was in captivity in Babylon under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He was thrown into the lion's den for praying. Uh, And his friends were thrown into a furnace for refusing to bow down to an idol. 
The Assyrian Empire had conquered the, uh, the ten northern tribes of Israel in 722 BC, had a reputation for horribly mutilating the people that they, uh, that they conquered. They would uh, burn the cities that they uh, defeated to the ground and they would flay the people that they found inside. They just, you know, rip their skin off uh, and they would impale their bodies on stakes as a warning to others. Those things may have happened thousands of years ago, but they bear a haunting resemblance, don't they, to the kinds of things that still are happening 2,000 years later, thousands of years later, in our own world and in our own time. At the moment, civil war is tearing Syria apart. We've seen the, the carnage and the slaughter ISIS is capturing and slaughtering people uh, uh, in Syria and Iraq as well. Not so long ago in Rwanda, one ethnic group took up arms against another. And in 100 days, in 100 days, 800,000 people were killed. That's like the population of Tasmania being wiped out twice in a little over three months. It's staggering. I can't even begin to imagine that. This past Friday, a man was arrested for his part in the genocide in Rwanda. What was his role? His role was organising mass rapes and the slaughter of thousands of people. (laughs) Who does that? Who spends their time organising a mass rape? In Cambodia, between 1975 and 1979, the regime of Pol Pot slaughtered two million of their own people. You can read about that if you're interested in uh, Don Cormack's book. He was a missionary in Cambodia, Killing Fields, Living Fields. It's a horrific tale. I asked Peter uh, last Sunday what life was like in Egypt under Hosni Mubarak. He told me a story of a girl... Christian girl being raped, of people being beaten, and of a police cover-up. And the list could go on and on. And even though we here, you and I, might not suffer like that, there's no denying that every day there are people in our community, in our world, in our country, in our town, who are suffering immense cruelty. Rosie Batty, the, was, uh, the woman whose husband killed her son, beat him to death with a cricket bat uh, and then was shot himself by the police, recently said in a speech to a joint sitting of the Victorian Parliament, when we think of terrorism, we think of how awful it would be to have a gun to our head. When we see it on the streets in the most barbaric of ways, we're horrified and don't ever want that to happen to us. That is happening now in people's homes. Some women live in constant fear. I know women who have an alarm strapped to them 24-7 who can never go out in public without the fear that somehow someone may just attack them. There are women who will never go out again. Uh, I know a man who's an ambulance officer. He couldn't make it to something the other day. I said, why, you know, sorry sorry you couldn't be here. Where were you? I was attending to to an accident. Someone had poured petrol, woman had poured petrol on her husband and set him alight. 
I was in Melbourne a few weeks back uh, and uh, a lady came up and sat next to me at the table where, where I was. And I said, as he did, I said, what do you, <laughs> he said, I'm Carl, you know, I'm a pastor. What do you do with yourself? I'm running a Royal Commission into Domestic Violence. So he'd been heading the Royal Commission in uh, Victoria for, 12, for the past 12 months, trying to find solutions to the reality, the plague of domestic violence uh, in our country and in our world. And rightly so, because it is a blight on our society. The statistics suggest that in the population in general, half of men over 15, half of men over 15 have experienced some form of violence. And 40% of women over 15 have experienced some form of violence. 17% 17 of women over 15 have experienced some form of sexual assault. And 4% of men over 15 have experienced some uh, form of sexual assault. What does that mean? It means that if you walk out of this building, the odds are that the person that you talk to will have been affected, their life will have been devastated by violence and evil. And it's not just if you walk out the building. In here too, there are people whose lives have been marred and damaged and broken by violence and abuse. And is an utter tragedy. It is wrong. It is desperately wrong. It is wicked. It is evil. You see, we're not talking about statistics, but we're talking about real people. Real people whose lives have been broken and damaged by the violence and evil done to them by other people. And that's what this psalm acknowledges. The real, the very real experience of suffering at the hands of other people. Suffering at the hands of other, uh, other human beings. So that's the first thing I think that this psalm opens our eyes to see and helps us to express the reality of evil in our world and the reality of having experienced that ourselves. The second thing this psalm speaks of is the deliverance from that evil by God. Verse 4, but the Lord is righteous. All those things are happened, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. What is evil like? It's like cords. It's like being tangled up. It's being, like being tied up with a rope. You can't get away from it. And the harder you struggle, the, the worse it is. It wraps around us and it won't let us go. But here's the miracle, miracle of miracles. God comes and cuts those cords. God can cut the cords of evil and deliver us from it. The ground of God's rescue is his righteousness and his justice. God's desire is for the world to be just as he is just, for the world to be righteous as he is righteous, for people to be holy and good as he is holy and good, for the world to be as he intended it to be, rather than as we have made it to be, a world corrupted by our own evil. But the good news of this psalm uh, is Uh, is not only that God has cut us free from the cords of the wicked, uh, but also the good news of the gospel is that God has set us free from the cords of the wicked in Jesus. God has done a greater work. God did a great work for these people in the past, but God has done a greater work in delivering us from evil in Jesus Christ. 
On the cross, Jesus not only brought forgiveness, we rightly focus on that, but on the cross, Jesus not only brought forgiveness for sin, Jesus brought triumph over evil. He brought the defeat of evil. When Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered the evil that put him on the cross in the first place. People said, ha, 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 we're going to kill you because we don't like you. You claim to be God and we don't like the kind of God that you claim to be. God conquered evil on the cross because he showed that evil was powerless. Because God turned our worst evil as human beings, putting the Son of God to death, into the greatest good. Redemption for those who believe in Jesus. Evil was defeated because its two worst weapons were defeated. Death and judgment. Jesus conquered death by rising from the dead and he brought release from judgment through his death, suffering the judgment that we deserved uh, in our place. But not only has Jesus already uh, enacted that death blow against evil, one day Jesus will return and make everything subject to him. Evil will be ended for good. Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Then the end will come when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is, one day it's really going to be all over. Evil will be at an end and justice will be done and justice will be seen to be done. If your life hasn't been scarred much by evil, then that may not... You know, you might go, well, that's, that's great, isn't it? I suppose. But if your life has been marred by deep suffering at the hands of other human beings, the end of evil will be some of the best news that you could ever hear. <laughs> Finally done. No more fear that one day the same thing will happen all over again. You might be suffering from the evil and malice of others even as we speak. And one day God will cut the cords of the wicked and it will never, ever threaten you ever again. For those people whose lives are being torn apart by war in Syria and Iraq, the end of evil is unspeakably good news. The end of war, the end of violence, the end of famine brought on by the corruption of governments, the end of sex slavery, the end of brutality. For those people whose lives have been torn apart by violence and abuse within their own home, by their own family, by their own husband or wife, by their own parents, by their own children. The end of evil is good news. Finally, being able to trust people again.
for those who've been abused physically and sexually by people who claim to know Christ, for pe- by people who claim to be working in the name of Christ. By people who perpetrated some of the most unspeakable evil. For those people who've been abused, the end of evil is good news. The knowledge that when Jesus returns, judgment will happen and evil will be at an end. That is good news. It's terrible news, but at the same time, it's good news. Because suffering is real and evil is real and it is appalling. So first we have to acknowledge the very real experience of suffering and suffering at the hands of other human beings. Second, we have to recognize that the good news of uh, we have to recognize the good news of God's work to deliver us from evil through Jesus, uh, through His work finished on the cross, uh, and whose fruit will be seen on the last day. I think for the most part, this far, most of us can kind of can appreciate what the psalm is getting at. Yes, there's evil in the world. Yes, the end of evil is good. But I think the last part of the psalm is the thing that we find the most difficult, the the call for judgment and the call for retaliation. In verse 5, the people call out, May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. With it the reaper cannot fill his hands, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. As disturbing as those verses might appear at first, we have to understand them through the lens of those first two things. The reality, the deep reality of human suffering and God's promise to end evil. It's only in the light of both of them together that we can understand this call for retribution. You see, the reality of human suffering demands the end of evil, but how can evil be ended? On the cross? Yes, we've, we've seen that, haven't we? But what if people refuse to listen? What if people refuse to turn from evil and embrace Christ? What then? How then will evil be ended? Within hours of the recent terrorist attacks in Paris, the French president, Francois Hollande, said, Our fight will be merciless because the terrorists that are capable of such atrocities need to know that they will be confronted by a France that is determined, unified and together. France will not let itself be overawed. Even if today it is expressing an infinite amount of emotion at this drama and this tragedy, which was an abomination and a barbaric act. Our fight will be merciless. It was plastered all over the pages of newspapers around the world. The French president recognised that some kind of justice, some kind of retribution was required for this evil act. Not just as a move for justice, but also as a move for peace. It's fine for us to say, to be high-minded and to say uh, that we end violence by kindness or by just going about our lives. But what if people refuse to turn from their evil? What other option is there? Imagine if in Syria at the moment, uh, everyone got together, they sat down at a a nice round table 
uh, all the diplomat all the diplomats and they said to each other we we forgive you and then they went out and they kept fighting the war and they kept bombing each other they kept slaughtering each other but by golly they were forgiven You see, forgiveness without the end of evil is no victory at all. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a joke, that's what it is. It would be an empty victory for God to forgive sin, but to leave evil unconquered and unpunished. Tim Keller, in his uh, book, The Reason for God, quotes, uh, I don't know how you pronounce his name, Cesar Milosh, the uh, Nobel Prize winning poet, Uh, He wrote, wrote, and now we are witnessing a transformation. A true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. So he's talking about the idea of communism, the idea of communism that uh, religion was the opium of the masses that kind of made people feel good about their lives. He says, no, he says, no, I'll tell you what the true opium of the masses is. The opium of the masses is this, a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders are not going to be judged. Well, it doesn't matter, does it? I'll never be held to account. Miroslav Volf uh, is a theologian who grew up in Croatia and saw firsthand some of the abominations in that country. He writes that the idea of a God who does not judge is not a biblical idea. It's an idea bred in Western suburbia. It's an idea bred among people who've never experienced violence and tragedy. But among people, he says, whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit, such an idea will inevitably die. A God who doesn't judge can't exist in a country where evil is everywhere. It will die amid the deep desire that people have for the end of evil and for justice. But what this psalm gets right is that the judgment here and the end of evil doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. It's not our role to end the evil. It's God's. These people cry out for justice uh, to God. They cry to God to end. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof. It's a cry to God because God is the only one who can judge the world in fairness. God only is the only one who knows the circumstances, the realities. And without that judgment, there can be no deliverance from evil. Again, Tim Keller uh, quotes a lady by the name of Becky uh, Pippet, who says, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign intolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. God's wrath is not 
cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. God's wrath is not cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race, which he loves with his whole being. You see, the problem is that we want two mutually incompatible things. We want a world without suffering, and we want a God who doesn't judge and doesn't send people to hell. But the gospel, the good news about Jesus, introduces for us another possibility. It introduces another possibility for dealing with evil that doesn't involve hell. It introduces the possibility that God would remove evil by forgiving and transforming people. And that's just as well because in order for God to deliver the world from evil, in order for God to deliver us from evil, he needs to deliver us from ourselves and from each other. In order for God to deliver you from evil, he has to deliver you from the evil that I do against you. In order for God to deliver me from evil, he has to deliver me from the evil that you perpetrate against me. James Van Dyke said the other night, I thought it was so helpful, he said, we need God to deliver us not only from the terrorism out there, we need God to deliver us from the terrorism in here. Because the heart of terrorism rests in every person's heart, every soul, every person's mind. One man wrote on the Pol Pot era in Cambodia, he released a book uh, last year, he reflected on the mass murder. He reflected that mass murder relies on people like us. The people who became embroiled in mass murder in that country weren't abominations, they weren't outcasts, they were ordinary people. Hannah Arendt, who witnessed the, night, the trial of the Nazi Adolf Eichmann, called it the banality of evil. It was ordinary German citizens, respectable people, who got caught up in attacks on Jews and other minority groups in the Second World War. It was ordinary people who slaughtered their fellow citizens in Cambodia and Rwanda. So Paul says uh, to Titus in, in Titus 3.3, he says... At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our God, of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You see, there are two options. There are two options for the end of evil. To embrace the gospel, to be forgiven and to be transformed by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit who transforms us to be like Jesus Christ, the only man who was never evil. We can embrace the gospel Or there's the judgment of hell. What these last few verses of this psalm envisages is not people who are desperately repentant. 
Not people who are desperately sorry for what they've done and are crying out, please, please forgive me for what we did to you. What the last few verses of this psalm envisages are people who are hardened in their opposition and hatred of the people of God. Hardened in their opposition and hatred of God himself. They refuse to turn and seek the living God. If they, ref- if they do that, if they refuse to turn and seek the living God in Jesus Christ, what other option is there in ridding the world of evil? Jesus talks more about hell than anybody else. But he has a right to, because he's the one person who's done more than anybody else to rescue us from it. Jesus suffered the hell that we deserved so that if we put our trust in him, we might not suffer it. But if we ignore him and if we reject him, there's no plan B. There's only two ways to rid the world of evil. Hell or the gospel. Please choose the gospel. Please choose Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, uh, we're deeply, deeply saddened by the world that we live in. Lord, we know that you created the world good. You created us as human beings good. And that the sadness and the sorrow that we see around us is the result of our own rebellion, our own desire to rule this world apart from you. Lord, we bring this misery on each other. And Lord, not just in war and uh, famine and murder and violence, but Lord, also in the jealousy and the uh, anger, the manipulativeness that we show toward each other, the way that we deal in our businesses, the way that we damage our marriages, the way that we make the lives of our children misery, the way we make the lives of the people around us misery. Lord, all of us are scarred by the evil that we do to each other. And Lord, all of us are perpetrators of it and in desperate need of rescue. Lord, thank you that in Jesus Christ, you are redeeming and rescuing the world from evil, cutting the cords of the wicked, cutting the cords with which we've tied up ourselves. And thank you, Lord, that you have done that and are doing that not only in the justice of hell and the promise of the final end of all evil, but Lord, thank you that you are doing it most spectacularly in the cross, the resurrection and the life of Jesus Christ who died in our place and who has poured out his Holy Spirit on those who trust him 
so that we might be forgiven and freed from all evil. Lord, we pray that you would rescue our world from evil. But Lord, we also pray that you would continue to be patient so that many more will repent before that last and final day arrives. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.